Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Shut I'm up. Bethan. And I'm Mark. Hello, people. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again. Uh, we said we'd have a little chat, didn't we, at the beginning? And now yeah. we're here. I don't I don't really know what to talk about. We'll have to do another one of our YouTube little chats sometime. So if anybody anybody listening has got an idea for a topic, chuck it our way. Yeah, because I'm, I'm really bored of COVID stuff now. Oh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just want it all to be over. I want it to be over and done with. Yeah, as Bethan says, if anyone's got any suggestions of, of any kind of stuff that you'd like us to discuss, usually kind of light-hearted stuff, uh, stuff that we can have a bit of a laugh around, then um, yeah, drop us a DM or whatever, yeah. Definitely light-hearted. I want a light-hearted conversation. <laughs> so what have you been up to then, Bethan? Well, nothing, obviously. Oh, for We've fuck's been... sake. Yeah, I've been sat in my house, um, but... There you go. That's life, isn't it? It's been nice weather, though. Did you watch the Joanne Lees? I, I'm calling it calling it the Joanne Lees documentary, but it's not really all about her. Obviously, it's about Peter Falconio. Um, but Murder in the Outback, yeah. I watched the first one, and then I've got the rest taped, and I haven't got around to the rest of them yet. Was there anything particularly exciting or scandalous? Not really. I thought it was very Netflix in style. So it was on Channel 4, but they'd, they'd borrowed heavily from kind of Netflix's sort of way of doing that kind of thing. So dragging it out a little bit. And I thought it might be, I, I thought it might be quite predictable in that, you know, they would kind of lead you to believe that Joanne Lees was responsible. And then they'd throw something right at the end, maybe in the final episode that made you think she wasn't and that it was definitely Bradley Murdoch. But to be fair to them, they did have a massive question mark hanging over Bradley Murdoch's guilt throughout right to the very end. And it, it did raise a lot of questions about Joanne Lees. Um, certainly not saying that she's responsible for Pete's death, but just that maybe, you know, we don't know uh, everything that happened in that case. But I did a live tweet along to it. And um, thank you to everybody who joined in on that. Uh, we had some um, some really interesting discussions. So we'll do yeah, something like that really again. I really enjoyed that you did that. I really liked the idea. So we'll have to make sure next time something else is on that one of us is going to watch, do a, a live tweet along. It was really good fun, actually. And the last episode, I'd had a few vodkas, so... I noticed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, standard. So, um, so yeah, it was really good fun, but I'm up for doing it again. Yeah. Uh, we just need, you know, good shows. So, so yeah, we'll definitely do it again. Mm, one of our listeners, Graham, was um, talking about Tiger King. Is that what it's called? Joe Exotica thingy? Yeah, have you still um, not seen that? I still seen haven't that? watched it, and I'm not sure if I will, but maybe I'll have to watch it. I wouldn't that. bother now, because, like, it's the moment's over. passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nobody's talking about it anymore. Yeah, well, that's got me out of watching that then. <laughs> it just seemed like too much. You've missed the boat. Good. So before we start, shall we say a big thank you to our newest Patreon supporter? Yes, I think we should. Yeah, um, her name is Ashley O'Donnell. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining our Patreon family. Hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes as well. And this week we are heading back to the USA for a case. Mm, long time no USA. I know. And it is a listener requested case. So Emma Louise suggested it back in January, I believe on Instagram, but maybe it was on Facebook. Um, so there we go. Emma Louise, thank you for the suggestion. As we love to cover on this show, it is a major miscarriage of justice. So we're going to be delving into a world of horrendous racism prejudice and it is a case that is going to make you a very very angry mark i'm all ears so first of all i'm going to take you back to november the 1st 1986 and we head to monroeville alabama 
In most of the United States, counties are the political subdivisions of a state. And then the city, town or populated place that houses the county government is known as the seat of its sort of respective county. So Monroeville is the county seat of Monroe County, Alabama. And it is absolutely tiny. So, But whilst it is tiny, it is actually really important as this county seat. And it also has the claim to fame of being the hometown of two prominent writers, Truman Capote and Harper Lee. Harper Lee. I um, had to read To Kill a Mockingbird at school. Boring book, really, for kind of like a 15-year-old. Yeah. I'd probably enjoy it much more now, but at the time it was like, oh, bloody hell, you know. I think that's the thing. But what's really interesting is because of where she lived, that was what really inspired her to write that. And you possibly see some kind of correlation or... Um, similarities with this case to be honest with you. So Rhonda Renee Morrison was an 18 year old community college student and she was headed to her part-time job in a shop. She was pretty well loved and a kind member of the local community. She'd grown up in this small town of about 7,000 people and had worked at Jackson Cleaners for two years and as usual was on the 1st of November she kind of drove herself to work parked in her usual spot and began the routine of opening up the shop. She has been seen by witnesses specifically at 9.05am and 10.30am. Both witnesses said that they didn't see anything out of the ordinary, and I think considering the type of place it was, people would know each other's routines quite well. At around 10.40, a lady called Mrs. Denning entered Jackson Cleaners, but there was no one there. She did notice that the cash register was open, and she could see money in the form of notes and coins inside. She called out, but she got no answer. So she waited around, I'm guessing, for a member of staff to come back and serve her. But nobody came and she kind of was hanging around. At about 11 o'clock, two other customers arrived, Mrs. Mason's and Mr. Stacy. And I guess due to it being a small town and people knowing what was normal or not, the three of them realised something was wrong. So rather than just waiting for a staff member to come out, they decided to take a look around. I imagine they were probably expecting to find the 18-year-old had sort of snuck off or maybe she was poorly or something, but anything really except for what they actually found. Rhonda Morrison was laying face down in a corner of the store, in amongst the clothing racks, clearly dead. The trio of customers really quickly called the police. So at 11.05, the local police arrived at the scene, but frustratingly, they made a number of mistakes whilst they processed the scene. To be fair to them, they didn't really ever have to deal with murders in this small town, so they weren't exactly used to this, but they allowed the scene to be contaminated from the very beginning, which is just really shitty in my opinion, for want of a better description. But like but you say that they don't they they're not used to dealing with murders because it's quite a small town, but then I think like we would know what to do. And I know we kind of do a true crime podcast and stuff, but anybody would know that you need to kind of seal the scene off and not contaminate it. Whether you work for the police or not. I mean, this is in the 80s. And obviously, like things like DNA evidence is really and forensics has come on a lot. But yeah, they didn't wait for the state police's experts from the crime lab to arrive before they began searching for fingerprints. So by the time an officer from the Alabama Bureau of Investigation finally arrived on scene, there was fingerprint powder on every surface. And Rhonda's body had already been taken to the funeral home. So accurate fingerprinting, detailed examination of fibres at the scene, the exact location of the body, her facial expression, um, hairs, all of this, and so much more that could have helped to build a picture of the crime. It was just impossible for that 
actual expert to kind of do any of his job. Rhonda's body had been removed really hastily and without enough care for preserving evidence and things were missed. What the police did establish was that $35 was missing from the till, but when they dusted the till for prints they found only unidentifiable smudges. One of the initial officers on the scene testified that when he first examined Rhonda's body she was cool to the touch and the police also noted that Rhonda's blouse and her pants were unbuttoned which made sexual assault a possible motive for her murder. However, no semen or identifiable DNA was recovered from the scene and Rhonda Morrison was officially pronounced dead at 11.30am. Rhonda had been shot three times as she ran for her life. The police clarified that, using a .25 calibre handgun, her killer had chased her into the rear of the store, shooting at her. They found five spent shell casings from a .25 calibre handgun in there, and then the final shot at Rhonda had been at point-blank range. The coroner concluded that she had lived for about five minutes after being shot. Oh God, that's just... Isn't that just bloody awful? Yeah. One that she, you know, absolutely knew what was happening to her. So she was running away and she was shot at and she was hit twice. And then to then be finally shot at point blank range, you know, her ordeal wasn't even over then. It was five minutes of pain, agony, knowing what had happened Mm -hmm. on your own, knowing that you're dying and then finally finding that peace, I suppose. But that's still an awful way to put it because she's paid with her life. And the police interviewed several suspects and they did post a reward, but the crime remained unsolved for seven months. So Ralph Myers, a man with a long criminal record, was arrested for the murder of another young woman in Alabama and he was interrogated about Rhonda Morrison's murder and eventually stated that Walter McMillian, a 46-year-old man from Monroe County, had killed Rhonda. The two men were arrested, Walter and Ralph, and both were charged with capital murder, but Ralph Myers made a deal with prosecutors to testify against Walter McMillian in exchange for a lighter sentence. He told jurors that he saw him standing over the girl's body, and then two other witnesses corroborated parts of Ralph Myers' story, and Walter McMillian was convicted. So it seems cut and dried, doesn't it? It would appear so, except for one glaring issue. Walter was across town at a barbecue fish fry with friends who would testify to that fact at the time that Rhonda was shot. And one of the people at the fish fry was actually on the police force. Numerous character witnesses were happy to testify as to Walter's innocence. Um, This was a man who had one small blemish on his record, which was a minor incident involving a bar fight, but one who had no other history of criminal activity, and yet he was sent to death row for Rhonda's brutal murder, a brutal murder that he didn't commit, So how on earth did this happen? Before we get to that, I'm going to take you back a little while just to tell you a bit more about Walter's life before 1986. So he was born on October the 27th, 1941, and he lived in a black settlement near Monroeville where he grew up picking cotton. He met his wife Minnie when the pair were teenagers, and when Minnie became pregnant in 1962, they got married. Ultimately, they had nine children. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Nine. Life wasn't easy. In the first year of their marriage, they almost starved. Walter was a field hand and earned $14 a week and they lived in a shack, but they got through it. Walter tried so hard to get on in life and worked many, many jobs to provide for his family. He purchased some logging and paper mill equipment and eventually became a moderately successful businessman, opening his own land clearing business. On the side, he sold marijuana. Just, I loved that, just on the side. 
but he was actually a businessman as well. Um, and his arrest record consisted of one conviction for possession of marijuana, which he was fined $100, one charge of selling marijuana, which had been dropped, and one charge for cutting another man with a knife outside a nightclub, and he was given a year's probation. Walter was talked about in the community, though, because he began an affair with a white woman. So this woman's name was Karen Kelly, and she was one of his customers. And one of Walter's sons actually married a white woman as well. So Walter and his attorney are convinced that the reason he was a suspect was because of those relationships. He felt like he was seen to have violated the racial and sexual taboos of this small Alabama town in which he lived. And in a prison interview in 1993, Macmillan said, The only reason I'm here is because I'd been messing around with a white lady and my son married a white lady. And this right here is the key fact of this case, just racism through and through. Walter was black and the people in charge used this as a reason to frame him. One point that I read, which would kind of help you give, an, give you an idea of what life was like at this time in Monroe. Our shooting victim, Rhonda, had attended Monroe Academy and this was a private, all-white high school that had been formed by the town's parents to avoid racial integration. Like, how horrific is that, seriously? That just breaks my heart, yeah. I mean, so what, she was like... So this would have been probably in the 70s then, I guess, because um, she was murdered in like 84, 86, 86 did you yeah, say? and she was 18 86, by that point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it would have been in the 70s, yeah, 70s, 80s really. But yeah, that just, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because that's within my lifetime probably, and that, that just disturbs me. Yeah, it's it that fact, and I mean, you know, it's not like it was her parents set up the school or anything, but she'd gone to a school that was purely set up in so that they they didn't have to mix with black people i mean what the hell so newly elected sheriff tom tate was under pressure to find a suspect in ronda's murder and when ralph myers who was a white career criminal he got arrested on suspicion of murdering another woman nearby the police then spoke to him about ronda as well during his interrogation police said that they had witnesses who would testify that he had committed the morrison murder along with walter mcmillian and he was a 46-year-old African-American man and notorious in the community because he had a white girlfriend. So Ralph, because of all this pressure that they were putting on him, decided to confess to being at the scene with Walter in exchange for a lighter sentence. He gave a taped confession in which he said that he had drove Macmillan to the scene of the crime and that Macmillan went into the building alone. And he said that he heard popping sounds. And when he entered the building, he found Walter with a gun standing over the bed body of Rhonda and he was robbing her. The only evidence that connected Walter to the killing was this testimony by Myers in line with his recorded statement. And two other witnesses claimed to have seen that Walter's low rider truck was outside the building at the same time as the crime allegedly occurred. That was the only evidence against Walter. Walter was arrested in June 1987. And when he tried to tell Sheriff Tate that he and his wife had been hosting a fish fry to recruit new members for their church congregation on the day in question and was innocent, the sheriff replied, I don't give a damn what you say or what you do. I don't give a damn what your people say either. I'm going to put 12 people on a jury who are going to find your goddamn black ass guilty. I just, oh, I hate this sheriff so much, Mark. It's already making me really angry. Yeah. yeah. This whole case is just going to make you so cross. And the sheriff then sent Walter to Alabama's death row in Holmes State Prison. 
So this was pretty much unheard of decision given that he had yet to be convicted and this is not what normally would happen to a convicted murderer awaiting execution and Walter remained there in the prison in death row for 15 months before his trial. That's just weird, isn't it? I don't really understand why you would put somebody there on remand whilst they were awaiting a trial. Like you say, it's obviously it's unheard of, but... Yeah, it's yeah. He just literally really knew that he was going to set him up for this crime, and he knew that. Yeah. He hate. He obviously just hated him. Yeah. And don't forget about Sheriff Tate, because we'll be returning to that piece of shit later. <laughs> so the trial, as I'm sure you'll be expecting, this was an absolute farce. Also, the defense asked that the trial be moved from Monroe County because of all the publicity surrounding the case. In Monroe County, the white population was reported about 40% and the judge agreed to move the trial and it was moved to Baldwin County, where white people made up 86% of the population. This was apparently not on purpose, but I think it was and most people think it was. So the jury then was made up of 11 white people and one person who has been described as black African-American. It was very difficult for Minnie to raise the money to pay for Walter's defence Her church and the local community helped and at times the attorneys threatened to stop working if they weren't paid. Minnie was really upset when she learned about Karen Kelly but she steadfastly believed in Walter's innocence and worked really hard to kind of provide him some sort of legal cover. The trial began on August the 15th 1988 and it lasted a day and a half. Oh my god. A day and a half for a murder charge. The judge presiding over the trial was Judge Robert E. Lee Key Jr. And the evidence against Walter was as follows. So firstly, Ralph Myers testified that he and Walter drove to Jackson Cleaners and whilst he waited, he heard popping sounds. And then he went into the store. He saw Walter stood over Rhonda's body. Another witness, Bill Hooks, said he had seen Walter's low rider truck near the cleaners on the morning of the murder and that he had seen Myers and McMillian driving away from the cleaners. And Hook said that he had tried to give the police some of this evidence on the night of the crime after he'd been arrested for urinating in public. Someone called Joe Hightower testified that he too had seen this lowrider truck um, near the cleaners on November the 1st, 1986. And Hightower said that he had seen the same truck many times before and he knew it was Walter's truck because he'd been to Walter's house to buy marijuana. And this was literally all the evidence against Walter. There was no DNA, not even a past criminal record that would really throw much doubt on the man. They didn't even try and provide a motive, and Walter didn't testify. The defence called six witnesses who could testify that he was at his house at the fish fry, plus they discussed his character and his criminal history. I don't know how this whole trial fit into a day and a half. Like, what a shit show. It's absolutely horrific. Um, In its closing argument, the state emphasised the beauty of Rhonda and her life and the cruelty of her murder. And Walter was represented by attorney J.L. Chestnut, who argued only God should decide who lives and dies and only once did he mention Walter. So the jury found Walter guilty of first-degree murder during a robbery and recommended a life sentence and so followed the penalty phase of the trial. This was to determine if a death sentence should be given and it began immediately after the guilty verdict. The prosecution put on no witnesses and the defence put on only one witness, which was Walter. When he tried to explain that he was innocent of the crime and that he did not know Ralph Myers, the judge cut him off saying this phase is about punishment, not guilt. They've already found you guilty, so now we're just discussing what we're going to do with you. 
In his sentencing remarks, he said that Mamillion deserved to be executed for the brutal killing of a young lady in the first full flower of adulthood, and he was allowed to override the jury's recommendation due to a practice which is unique to Alabama. So I am going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I do think it's relevant. This judge override practice allows elected trial judges to override jury verdicts of life and impose death sentences. So according to the Equal Justice Initiative, no capital sentencing procedure in the United States has come under more criticism as unreliable, unpredictable and arbitrary than the judge override. And I've read online that the frequency of judge override has since come under scrutiny as well because one quote said nearly 70 Alabama judges have single-handedly ordered an inmate's execution and collectively they have done so more than 100 times. 36 of the nearly 200 convicts on death row are there now because of override. So basically the judges could just do whatever they wanted. It's weird though, isn't it? Because in this country, so obviously we don't have capital punishment, but it's never a jury that decide on the sentence. It's always the judge. And I wonder if if we did have capital punishment, if it would be the jury that would then get to decide whether it's kind of, for example, in, in a case like this, whether it's life imprisonment or whether it's, uh, you know, death by execution. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? That they have this, yeah, like a rule over there that you the jury give the recommendation, but then the judge can just decide anyway. Whereas our judge would decide, our judge would just tell the sentence. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like, I do understand that the judge gets to have a say, but why give the jury a say at all if you can ultimately override what they've agreed? It's just weird, isn't it? Yeah, and I also think with a lot of our sentencing, um, quite often the judge will say the recommended sentence is this, however I'm doing this for these reasons, and they kind of almost have to justify what they say, don't they? Yeah, I mean, sentencing remarks would be six, seven pages long. Normally, yeah. And so after being held on remand in a prison that was usually housing death row prisoners and after waiting for his sentencing on death row, as if his death penalty was a foregone conclusion, Walter was returned to death row once again. In November 1988, a young attorney called Brian Stevenson, who was a Harvard Law School and Harvard School of Government graduate, and the director of the newly formed Alabama Capital Representation Resource Centre in Montgomery, took on Walter's appeals. Walter continued to maintain his innocence, and Stevenson was ready to investigate this for him. He was especially frustrated by the use of Judge Override, and Stevenson went to Walter's community and he met dozens of people who were willing to state that he was at the fish fry when the murder happened. In 1991, four requests for appeal were denied, but Brian and his team just didn't stop working, even despite a threatening phone call from Sheriff Key himself. Oh, that's so weird. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So Brian Stevenson said, I have never had a case where the state's only evidence of guilt comes from one person, where there's no motive, there's no physical evidence, there's no corroborating circumstances, there's nothing but the word of one person. And he told a reporter in 2016... What was so surreal about this case was that all these things that weren't supposed to keep happening kept happening. You know, I went to the prison to meet him first, this condemned man, and he told me he'd been placed on death row for 15 months before the trial. And I thought, you know, that's not supposed to happen. And then I got back to my office and I got a call from a man named Robert E. Lee Key, who was the judge who had condemned him to time, who told me that I shouldn't take the case, that this was not the kind of case that I should get involved with. 
So Stevenson had set up the Equal Justice Initiative, which provides legal representation to prisoners who may have been wrongly convicted of crimes. But he's received death threats for his work. He's been pulled over at gunpoint by police and he's been subjected to quite a a humiliating strip search in prison whilst he was visiting a client. So Walter's case eventually drew national attention and it was a subject of a 1992 60 Minutes expose which showed how flimsy the case was against the convicted man who was awaiting death by electrocution. And Walter's case just got more and more attention. Walter's attorneys were able to access a recording of Myers' confession and amazingly they got hold of this because on the B-side of the tape there was an unreported conversation during which Myers was complaining he was being forced to implicate Walter, a man he didn't even know, in a crime that neither of them had actually committed. And Myers, after his own trial and conviction, had told Walter's trial counsel that the testimony he'd given against him was false. He confessed he knew nothing about the crime, that he wasn't there. And he'd only said what he did because law enforcement officers had made him say it. And that he testified against Walter because of pressure from those law enforcement officers. But with that, I do wonder, you know, you, you know, he's kind of saying my excuse is I was pressured into doing it. But he was handed a lighter sentence for the crime that he did commit as a result. So, you know, he wasn't just doing it because pressure was on him. He was doing it for his own ends. Well, no, he got a lighter sentence for the crime that he didn't commit. So Rhonda's murder, they were both um, convicted, but he was also but he was also on trial for the other murder as well. Right, yeah. I'm with you. Um, so Walter's team then kind of had this really good evidence that basically the key witness, the only witness really... Um, hadn't it wasn't even the truth anyway and they were also able to establish that Walter hadn't actually changed his truck into a lowrider style vehicle until six months after Rhonda's murder two mechanics Willie Nettles and Clay Cast testified that they had modified Walter's truck to convert it into a lowrider and they didn't do this work until several months after the commission of the crime at Jackson Cleaners and no reason was given as to why the defense hadn't called these witnesses at the original trial So those two witnesses who said that they saw his lowrider were either lying or completely making a mistake because it wasn't even a lowrider at that point. They also discovered that the prosecutors had concealed information about a witness who had seen the victim alive after the time that they were claiming that Walter had killed her. And in addition, the two witnesses that had testified they'd seen Walter's truck then retracted their testimony. And then finally, they actually admitted that they lied at the trial. So in 1992, Walter's attorneys filed a petition for a new trial which alleged various constitutional violations, including, quote, that a key state witness has recounted his testimony, that the appellant's conviction had been obtained by a perjured testimony, and that the evidence of perjury was newly discovered. And the petition also alleged that the state of Alabama had violated his constitutional rights by withholding exculpatory and impeachment information which is such a mouthful. That's what she said. (laughs) Exactly. But this just wasn't even enough. This shocking racism continued. One day in court, there was just a ruling made and a sign put up that no black people were going to be allowed in the courtroom. So when Stevenson arrived, he found all of Walter's supporters gathered outside and he was even told that he wasn't allowed to go in. Um, When he explained, well, I'm his attorney, and then someone went to go check, they finally let him in. But they weren't even going to let him in. This really is a shit show, isn't it? It's horrendous. Like all of it from start to finish in terms of, you know, how this guy was targeted. Exactly. 
And so Brian then managed to get the court to allow other black people in as well. But at first they were only going to let him in. And he was kind of like, well, this is ridiculous. You can't say that only white people are allowed in the court. It just wasn't easy at all. So they let other people come in. So Walter would have some supporters, but they had a German shepherd dog at the entrance to the court to make people walk past. It's just intimidation nonstop. One woman said that she didn't want to go past the dog to get into the courtroom because the sight of it filled her with terrible memories of being intimidated by police dogs during equal rights demonstrations in the 60s. But luckily, they kind of encouraged her and said, look, it's more important that you face your fears than you go in. Which is why they would have had the dog in the first place to invoke those memories of mm-hmm. that history. Absolutely. They would have known what they were doing with that. Yeah, it was it was a an emblem, wasn't it, of, of you know, what their beliefs were. So District Attorney Thomas Chapman, who didn't prosecute the original case in 1987, but had represented the state in Walter's previous appeals, told Stevenson, I want to do everything I can so that your client will not have to spend a single day more than he already has on death row. I feel sick about the six years that he has spent in prison and the part that I played in keeping him there. And so the appeal was granted and all of this evidence was brought before the courts. So finally, the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals reversed Walter's conviction and ordered a new trial. Frustratingly, the statute of limitations on possible perjury charges against the witnesses had expired, so those that had lied originally would get away with that, which is really annoying. The Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals found that the prosecutor, District Attorney Theodore Pearson, and the judge himself had practiced intentional racial discrimination in the jury selection. So luckily it was at least being recorded and reported on. On February 23rd, 1993, in the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, all judges concurred that the state suppressed exculpatory, I can't say this word, exculpatory? exculpatory and impeachment evidence that had been requested by the defence, thus denying the appellant due process of law, requiring the reversal of his conviction and death sentence and the remand of the case for a new trial. So on March the 2nd, 1993, on his fifth appeal to the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, the judges ruled five to none to reverse his conviction and grant him a new trial. And then the prosecutors dismissed the charges against him and he was finally released from death row. Walter walked out of court into the arms of relatives and said to the gathered press, I guess they'll get what's coming to them down the road. I'm innocent. God knows I'm innocent. His wife Minnie said nothing could repay her for the six years and stood with her granddaughter. And on the courthouse steps, more than two dozen friends and relatives waved their arms and shouted, praise the Lord. Can you imagine being on death row for six years, awaiting your execution for something you know you had no involvement in it's horror it's just a horrendous thing to think about it's like uh, yeah it's literally a living nightmare and then to then finally be you know acquitted and released god i mean can you imagine that sense of relief that you would feel yeah you wouldn't think it was real no you'd be thinking someone's about to tap you on the shoulder and take you back in or something wouldn't you you would yeah it would completely fuck you up for the rest of your life and this um Researching this case had a lot of similarities for me with Stefan Kisko and sort of him being released and that sort of thing. It's just, I just can't imagine how it will, like you said, how it felt for Walter just nonstop being on death row, basically waiting to be told your date for execution is this date, knowing you didn't do the crime that you're in there for. 
So District Attorney Thomas Chapman did join the defence in seeking to have the charges against Walter completely dismissed. He didn't agree, though, that there had been a deliberate effort to frame Walter, and he claimed that Walter's exoneration proved the system worked. But Brian Stevenson disagreed. He said to the court that it was far too easy to convict this wrongly accused man for murder and send him to death row for something he didn't do, and it was much too hard to win his freedom and prove his innocence which I completely agree with. It shouldn't be that difficult to get an appeal. Bollocks. The system didn't work because it took years. It took six years. Mm -hmm. And it took, what, you know, three attempts in 92 with no result or four attempts or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, that's just bollocks, isn't it? And it didn't work in the first place because that trial was an absolute joke. Yeah. But Walter was free at last and he returned to Monroeville to his family and friends, but he wasn't going to give up without a fight and he filed a civil lawsuit against state and local officials, including the three men in charge of investigating the murder of Rhonda Morrison. So Tom Tate, the sheriff of Monroe County, Larry Ickner, an investigator with the district attorney's office in Monroe County, and Simon Benson, an investigator with the Alabama Bureau of Investigation. He filed the lawsuit for his wrongful prosecution and conviction and it was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, but they ruled against him um, in the case of Tom Tate, saying that a county sheriff could not be sued for monetary damages. So here's where I wanted to tell you a few more facts about Sheriff Tom Tate. He stood firmly by his decisions regarding Walter's case, his lawyer stating at the civil trial brought against him by Walter, Sheriff Tate committed no wrongful act of any kind and should be commended for the way he conducted the case. And as well as showing no remorse for the part he played in framing Walter and pressurising Myers, Sheriff Tate then went on to make headlines in 2018 as one of numerous Alabama sheriffs who benefited from a little-known state law that allows sheriffs to pocket any so-called leftover money from the allocated funds that they're given to buy food for inmates. And this isn't just like a little bit of leftover money. Over a three-year period, Tate took home just over $110,000 in excess funds. So essentially, they're almost being rewarded for starving inmates. Yeah. yeah. And so the website that uncovered this contacted him for answers and he responded with, I do it just like the law tells us to. That's all I have to say about it. Doesn't really make it morally right and the law shouldn't be there in the first place. It should be amended. Yeah, exactly. So Sheriff Tate not only is a racist twat, but he's also greedy twat as well. Yeah. Although he's no longer a sheriff, you'll be pleased to know. So Walter settled out of court with officials for an undisclosed amount and he continued his life as a free man. Brian Stevenson began teaching law students and he would sometimes have Walter come on as a guest sort of speaker for the classes he was presenting. And Sweden awarded Stevenson and his organisation a prestigious honour. And there was a Swedish TV documentary made about Walter's story, during which he broke down remembering the hardship he had endured being on death row for so long. Walter worked again on a couple of different businesses until he was injured and he had to stop working. And in a really tragic turn, he developed dementia, which it was believed that had been brought on by the trauma of his false imprisonment. And he died at the age of 71 in September 2013. But that's not where Walter's story ends because his memory now is preserved forever thanks to a film that's been made about this miscarriage of justice. So the film is called Just Mercy. It is directed by Destin Daniel Cretton and it stars some huge names including Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx. 
The movie is based on lawyer Brian's 2014 best-selling memoir, Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. And another book about Walter's wrongful incarceration is by journalist Pete Early, and it was written in 1995 called Circumstantial Evidence, Death, Life and Justice in a Southern Town. So there's a lot of reading if people want to look at this case a bit more, but there's also this film. Um, And it's been described by Jamie Foxx as one of the most important movies I've ever been a part of. And Michael B. Jordan told Variety magazine that he felt a sense of responsibility to tell this story to make sure as many people as possible could see this film. Barack Obama put it on his shortlist of favourite films in 2019. And Brian Stevenson has praised the film as being really true to life, so I would absolutely recommend that you watch it. So after his exoneration, Walter spoke before the US Senate Judiciary Committee about the dangers of the death penalty. On the 1st of April 1993, he said the following. There are many things that concern me as I sit here today. I am excited and happier than I can describe to be free. At times I feel like flying. However, I am also deeply troubled by the way the criminal system treated me and the difficulty I had in proving my innocence. I am also worried about others. I believe there are other people under sentence of death who, like me, are not guilty. If federal courts do not permit death row prisoners to prove their innocence, even after many years on death row, and prevent wrongful executions, the hope of many innocent people on death row will be crushed. Justice is forever shattered when we kill an innocent man. And the film Just Mercy actually has a fact at the end, which is that for every nine people executed in the US, one innocent person has been exonerated. So one in 10 people put on death row has been exonerated. Oh, that just really, again, really bothers me. And we've had this debate so many times, haven't we? And neither of us believes in capital punishment. And this is exactly the reason. Yeah, for different reasons in a way, but like this is kind of the reason for you and it is partly my reason as well. But also I just think, you know, no human should be able to take the life of another human, whatever the circumstances. But like, yeah, it's just you just can't do this in a civilised society. You can't risk somebody being killed when they've done absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah. As would have happened here. Exactly. So, I mean, it is believed that had the judge not actually used his right to override the jury's decision and Walter was given just life imprisonment, I say just, but if he was given this lesser sentence, actually, perhaps his case might have been overlooked by social justice activists and civil rights lawyers like Brian Stevenson. So Stevenson has been quoted as saying, the fortunate thing about Walter's case is his innocence was demonstrable. It is clear that he had nothing to do with this crime. There are other folks in prison who don't have the money or the resources or the good fortune to have folks come in and help them. So, I mean, if he hadn't have been sentenced to death, perhaps he'd still now be sat there on a life sentence. I I honestly think you're right. I think because he was sentenced to death, that almost shocks people and gathers momentum and it it grabs the attention of some of those organisations. So I think you're right. Had he just uh, gone to prison for the rest of his life, he would most likely have died in prison. Yeah. And also he is very lucky, lucky is not the right word at all, but I can't think of the right way. He's very lucky that actually there was evidence proving he wasn't there and he came from a community where people were willing to stand up for him. He was respected in his community. There's going to be so many people who either have the misfortune of not having an alibi whatsoever, 
but they're still innocent. It's, it almost feels like this is a story, you know, you talked about, um, to kill, well, we talked about Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird and some of the parallels here. And, you know, that book was set, you know, long, long time ago. And it, it feels like this story belongs in a time of, you know, 18 something, like 100 odd years ago. So it's even more shocking that yeah, it's it happened in the last few decades. It's happened, like in your, like you were alive when this happened. And I was nearly, you know, I was born not long afterwards, but he was still on death row when I was born. Yeah. Because of this just systemic racism. And then, of course, poor Rhonda. Her murder has never been solved, which makes me really sad as well, because they just framed this person. They could have actually been looking for the real killer. And also, you know, she is almost the forgotten victim in this, because there are two victims, aren't there? But but she is almost the forgotten victim and there's no justice for her. Yeah, I struggled a lot to find information about her case. Because there's not very much. Because first of all, like you said, he Walter's kind of become the victim in the case, and because his his story's been made into a film and everything, people were, were talking about him a lot more, which is valid. But her story is almost an aside, framed for the murder of a woman, mm. and also the the terrible police work that they did at the beginning. Well, nothing's ever going to get solved with her case because they didn't bother to preserve the scene properly or. Or work the case. No. I'm fucking exhausted, Bethan. It's a it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a roller coaster of emotions of you know, I'm kinda of glad well, you know, of course I'm glad that he was exonerated in the end, but you know, what a shit time that he had in order to get to that point. It's not too late, but it almost was too late because the damage that that caused him was lasting and it, it took his life ultimately, took yeah. it too soon. And yes, he then did die as an older man, but he wasn't very old. He was in his 71. It wasn't old, really. And he could have been struggling with dementia for 10 years before that. Who knows? We don't know. Um, But yeah, it's likely that 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 trauma sparked something within him that that caused that. So there we go. That's my case for this week. Thank you so much if you've got this far, guys, without turning it off because you're so angry. I like to cover a miscarriage of justice, but I hate to cover them at the same time. Yeah, I don't know why. They, they always make me really angry. We, we cover loads of different types of crimes. Uh, quite often they are murders, but sometimes it's a motiveless murder. Sometimes it's familial. Um, sometimes it's, you know, due to specific motives like rape. Um, and yeah, we have covered miscarriage of justice before, and there are certain facets to these murders that just strike a chord, don't they? And, you know, miscarriage of justice really fucks us off. Barry George, that's the one that yeah. pisses me off. Jill Dando's uh, alleged yeah. killer. Well, that's a nice cheery note to finish on. Do you know what? Normally I try and bring something back round, and I literally finished my script for this episode and my research with... Wanda's murder was never solved. I just couldn't even bring myself to try and find some glimmer of hope with this. I was just pissed off. I can understand that. Thank you for listening, guys. Don't forget to hunt us out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to join us over on YouTube where you can watch a video along with the episode and it might have some bits of footage and stuff and some pictures of some of the places so you can kind of watch those afterwards as well. And if you are in a position where you're able to support us through Patreon, uh, we're always so grateful for anybody that is able to do that. So you can sign up really quickly uh, for as little as $3 a month. 
uh, just head over to uh, patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.